Good morning again. We continue in Paul's first letter to his protege, Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5, we'll read into chapter 6. This is one of these spots where I think the people who added numbers in later were wrong. They missed the chapter end. 1 Timothy chapter 5, if you're in a blue Bible, it's page 990-something. I forgot to look again. 1 Timothy 5. Paul says to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all those who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand what your word is saying to us this morning so that we as a church and as your people being watched by the world so that we might better honor uh, all those whom you have brought into our lives, particularly the weak, 
uh, particularly those whom we serve in difficult situations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our world today, we, we hear a lot and we talk a lot about rights, but not so much about duties. We talk a lot about rights, but are happy to leave duties aside. The flip side of what other people owe us is what we owe them. This is a passage mainly about duties, various duties that we as Christians owe to other people, especially those above us, whether they are above us in authority, elders, masters, or whether they are above us in age, widows. In the second half of this letter to Timothy, Paul is speaking about various practical and ethical effects that the gospel of Jesus is supposed to have in the community of his followers. Last week we saw in chapter 4, verse 7, we saw Paul urging Timothy that he and we must train ourselves and discipline ourselves for godliness. We've been saying that this word means uh, not just like private piety, but it's talking about a posture of devotion, a posture of dedication to God in all aspects of our lives. Paul said we need to train ourselves for godliness because it's valuable in every way, not just now, uh, not just in this life, but also and especially into the life to come, the eternal world of the new creation. Going further back in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul said that great indeed is the mystery of godliness. And then you might remember right away he describes the soil where godliness grows. He describes it as the good news about Jesus, his incarnation as God in the flesh, his resurrection from the dead, his glorious ascension into heaven. That, Paul says, what Jesus has done is the mystery of godliness. It's where godliness comes from. In other words, even as we're going to spend our last couple weeks in 1 Timothy talking about what we have to be doing as Christians in the church and through the church, we have to remember that what we do always flows out of what Jesus has already done. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus did this by giving up his rights, most horrifically and dramatically on the cross, and it's Jesus' giving up of his own rights that gives us the true power and the true motivation to shoulder our own ethical duties, even as fulfilling them comes with great pain and sacrifice. Jesus gives up his rights. That's what empowers us to carry out our duties. The moral transformation of our lives and of our relationships and of our community demonstrates that Jesus is who he really says he is. It demonstrates that the gospel really is true, that God's spirit that raised Jesus from the dead really is powerful and effective. A church full of Christians that looks just like the world around them actually makes a mockery of the good news of Jesus because the good news of Jesus is not just about something private that happens in our hearts and kind of gives us insurance so that we can go to heaven one day, but the good news of Jesus is about changing our lives, transforming us into the likeness of God's own son, Jesus. Paul's first general instruction to Timothy about duties comes in verses 1 to 2. He's talking about just kind of uh, treating everybody uh, in an appropriate way. 
You see there that even though Timothy is the pastor, Paul's just been telling him and warning him about you might have to rebuke some people in the church, you have to warn them about false teaching. Uh, even though he needs to be doing that, you see here that he must not become harsh. Older Christians will need pastoral instruction. They'll even need pastoral criticism from time to time. But Timothy needs to do it in an encouraging and a respectful way. Paul says, talk to him like you would, ideally, to your mother and your father. Uh, Paul says the same thing about younger Christians. They need to be lovingly treated like brothers and sisters as you're encouraging them and even rebuking them. Paul goes on in verses 3 to 16 now to focus on a specific kind of duty now from the general. He focuses on the churches and the Christians' duty toward widows. And by extension, uh, toward parents, toward grandparents, and then uh, toward the elderly. And then by further extension, uh, there are principles here about the Christians and the church's duty toward the poor more generally. Uh, Widows and orphans and sojourners, immigrants uh, in the Bible, are often a catch-all set of categories to describe uh, the poor in general. Paul here is focusing on widows, and so from that, there's things we can apply beyond that. Paul is here specifically concerned about caring for the most vulnerable widows, uh, those that he calls true widows. He says there's widows, and then there's widows. Paul defines them as being over 60 years old, uh, which in the ancient world was widely considered to be the age beyond which somebody was so old and frail that no one could really expect them to work to support themselves. For some perspective on this, I did a little bit of research on this early in the week. Um, For perspective, in the Roman world, as far as we can tell, a woman who reached 60 had outlived 85% of other women. By comparison, in 2019, let's leave aside COVID for a while, by comparison, in 2019, an American 60-year-old woman had outlived only 15% of other females that year. To outlive 85% of other females, like the Roman 60-year-old, an American woman has to reach 93. In other words, relatively few women live to be as old as Paul is describing here. Much of that was because half of girls died before 13 or 14. Paul is talking about women who are particularly vulnerable. He's describing a formal relief program in the local church for Christian widows who are not only pretty old for the time, but who also have no family. In verses 4 and 16, I'm going to jump around a little bit, so please leave your Bibles open. In verses 4 and 16, Paul says that the church should not be helping women who have families because it's their responsibility to care for the widows. In verse 5, he clarifies that the true widow is the one who is left all alone. And so because of that is marked by utter dependence on God in prayer. She has nobody else to depend on except God. It gets at a principle that later theologians would call subsidiarity. Subsidiarity. I would encourage you to read about this a little bit. Subsidiarity is, I think, the uh, common sense and biblical principle that the people and the communities closest to somebody in need are the best ones to meet it as much as they possibly can before going further and further out. To offload care for the poor and the weak onto communities uh, more distant than they need to be, onto entities more distant than they need to be, ends up doing great harm to the poor and the society in general. 
Uh, I recently read a book on the economics of the Great Depression, and I was really surprised to read that in 1931, uh, Congress passed a law wanting to give what would today be uh, almost half a billion dollars to the Red Cross to care for the poor, and the Red Cross said, no, we don't want the money. We think it will undermine giving and harm the poor. Paul says in verse 4 that a widow's children and grandchildren should show godliness to their own family by giving practical and meaningful support to the widow. As a kind, Paul says it's a kind of repayment. It's a return. It's a financial term for everything that she did for them. Because when you're a little kid and you're dependent, you can't do anything for yourself, you are utterly dependent on your parents. And as you get older, of course, you become much more dependent on other people to care for you. Paul says this is a repayment for the way that mom cared for you. Paul says it's pleasing to God when we do this. It's an act of service and devotion and worship to care for the elderly, to care for the weak. In verse 8, Paul says that a Christian who refuses to care for their own relatives is worse than a non-believer. They've actually denied their faith because at least in the Roman world, almost everybody took it for granted that it was right and good and normal to care for your parents in their old age. Paul assumes that even the people outside the church are going to be doing what he expects Christians to be doing. Care and respect for your ancestors in the past, uh, especially the ones that are still alive, is the flip side of care and concern for your descendants in the future. It's why I think in a passage all about caring for old ladies, Paul keeps talking about the importance of caring for children, about the importance of caring for the wider household. These things come together. A society that's fixated on pleasure and consumption in the present, like our own, not only is one that is going to tend to shun the old and scorn the past, but also one that is going to commodify children and ignore the future. Euthanasia and abortion are really two sides of the same hedonistic coin. Our society tends to idolize being productive, being efficient, working a lot, making lots of money. We idolize youth on top of all those things. And so we tend to view the elderly as useless and burdensome. And so I think what Paul is talking about here uh, is a way for us as Christians to show uh, how God really does change us. It's a way for us to do real and meaningful good for our wider community. We have, uh, in our world, we tend to offload so much of the care of the elderly away from the family and onto government programs that tend to undermine the warmth and the dignity of family relationships that they could never replace. This is a great opportunity for Christians in our world to do something that's not very sexy, it's not going to win you a lot of accolades, but something that's incredibly important, uh, of great pleasure, brings great pleasure to God to care for the weak and for the elderly. Um, I wonder how us today, uh, for those of us that still have parents alive, uh, how might we show practical concern toward elderly parents and grandparents? You notice here two kids that Paul talks about grandchildren uh, taking care of their grandparents. Uh, this isn't just something for people in their 40s and 50s to do. Uh, it's something that all of us can do. Uh, if you are already at the age when uh, you have grandchildren, when you have children, uh, there are ways, too, that you can model this for other people, caring for elderly people around you, peers, perhaps. Um, this is something that should be very important in the life of God's people. This doesn't mean that Christian families should not or could not use doctors or hospitals or nursing homes to care for their parents. It does not mean that Christians must take their parents into their own homes. 
And it does not mean that Christians uh, must allow abusive or selfish relatives to walk all over them. Uh, in verse 6, you can see there that Paul seems to be saying that a widow who is self-indulgent, uh, a woman who lives for herself and her own desires, doesn't have the same rights or expectations about care as the widows who live in prayerful dependence on God. Along the same lines, you can see in verse 10 that Paul says that churches should enroll widows who have a proven track record of marital faithfulness. I think that's what he means by uh, being the woman of one husband. Uh, women who have a proven track record of proven practical service to their families and their neighbors and their church. Paul says you should make priority to care for those who have been living for others, not for themselves. Probably because this uh, relief program in the church entailed some kind of expectation and obligation that the people would be serving in the church, uh, helping care for various needs in it, particularly toward the poor. Um, Doe Copeland, uh, one of our beloved members the, uh, for many years now, the oldest member of our church. She's not around for the summer. She's back in Michigan. Uh, but I don't even know if she's going to listen to this. But, you know, she's a great model of this. Uh, she, uh, up until COVID every week, was going to the food pantry, going and serving the poor, uh, you know, even in her uh, great uh, old age. Uh, she's doing exactly what Paul is talking about when he says care for widows like this, prioritize widows like this. Um, I also um, was really struck this week reading about how Paul talks about the, uh, the true widow who's dependent on God in prayer. Uh, I've often, as I've gone and visited uh, old people in their homes or in the hospital or nursing homes, I've tried to encourage them as people struggle and wonder, what's the point of my life now? How can I possibly do anything? I can barely move. I can't work. And I try to encourage them. You can pray. We need you to pray. Paul seems to understand that somebody who's old, who can't work, uh, has a lot of time to pray. And so this is an encouragement for you, especially if you're getting older, you're not able to do very much, uh, maybe you're uh, waking up a lot in the middle of the night, uh, praying uh, for your church, praying for other people, praying for your children and grandchildren is a beautiful act of service and worship to God, utterly important for what we're doing. We need older women like this. We need elderly people like this. I think a lot of the reason that Paul is hesitant to support those who have been living selfishly, why he's hesitant to support younger widows who should be and could be supporting themselves uh, the reason he's hesitant, I think, is because, as he says in verses 11 to 15, doing so can easily foster them being unproductive and lazy and selfish. Uh, it's similar to what he says in 2 Thessalonians 3, a different letter that he wrote to a different church. Uh, there, there was a big problem in the church of Christians thinking that because they were Christians, they could just kind of kick back and not have to work, uh, and they were expecting other people to pay for them and to take care of their needs. Paul says in that letter, it's really I mean, pretty shocking. He says Christians should actively refuse to help people who want to mooch off of others. He even goes so far to say that if somebody is able to work but is unwilling to do so, then Christians have a moral obligation to let them go hungry. Pretty tough love. And so even though, as we heard in our reading earlier, we saw this beautiful example of Jesus' compassion for the weak. Uh, there in that story, it was about the widow whose only son dies. Uh, even though Jesus was extraordinarily concerned to care for the physical and the emotional and the spiritual needs of the weak and the vulnerable, at the same time, Jesus refused to do miracles for people that only wanted him to fix their problems, even problems of hunger. Uh, Jesus often denied the requests of people who wanted to follow him on their own terms. Jesus excoriates people who want the benefit and the status and the income that comes with religious position but who refuse hypocritically to live it out. 
Sometimes truly loving somebody, even somebody very poor and very vulnerable, means saying no. Sometimes it means letting them suffer. It is not kind or gracious to enable or to reinforce selfish or destructive attitudes and behaviors, whether you're talking about a teenaged son or an elderly widow. Now, this is far from everything that the, bar, the Bible has to say about caring for the poor. And so it's not the limit of what Christians could do or should be doing for the poor, especially given that we live in a society that is dramatically more wealthy than the society that Paul is writing this letter into. Christians and churches today, especially in America, have a lot more money to give. We have a lot more stuff laying around. It's a lot easier for us to care for weak people. We don't have to be so careful about limiting so much of what we do because we just have a lot more to give. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, fellow Christians should be the priority for our giving, but we should also seek opportunities to help all kinds of people as we are able. Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially of the household of faith. Uh, if you're like me, you could and you should be thinking about and doing a lot more to care for the poor. Uh, it's easy for me to hide behind lots of qualifications and lots of excuses about not wanting to enable uh, bad things, not wanting to encourage bad things, and, invent, and just in the end not really doing anything. Proud of myself for my great logical acumen. It's really easy in our suburban world to be sealed off from the needy behind our flickering screens and our automatic garage doors. Uh, it's easy to tell ourselves we can't do this. We don't have uh, enough time. They live too far away. It's too much of a hassle to drive over there. Uh, at the end of Galatians 1, when Paul is explaining his early ministry, uh, he's, he talks about how he went and talked to the other apostles, and they're trying to figure out who is this guy. And he says, we come to an agreement about uh, what ministry is about. And he says, they, they asked us to remember the poor. And he says, it was the thing we were eager to do. I don't know about you, but for me, uh, things that I'm really eager to do, caring for the poor is not usually one of the first things I'm really eager to do. Paul says, this was the very thing we were eager to do. Remember the poor. That's duties toward widows and by extension towards elderly people, towards our parents and our grandparents. Lots of principles to apply in caring for the weak and the poor more widely. In verses 17 to 25, Paul moves on to the church's duties toward elders. Elders. Not only when they're doing what they should, but also when they shouldn't. A church that does not care about its pastor, whether they care about them by blessing them uh, or by rebuking them, is a church that also does not care about the gospel that the pastors are supposed to be teaching. Uh, the gospel that's the true motivation for godliness. Uh, Paul first talks about how to honor good elders, how to honor good pastors. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, he seems to be distinguishing here between two kinds of elders. Uh, there are elders who not only rule well, we call these elders ruling elders, uh, a lot of churches call them lay elders, uh, but Paul seems to also say there are elders who not only rule well, but they also labor in studying and teaching the Bible. We call these teaching elders. We call them pastors. That's what I am. 
Paul says that pastors should be paid well enough to not have to worry about making ends meet. There are lots of places in the world, there's lots of churches, even in America, that cannot afford to pay their pastors. But even in the first century, as impoverished as it was, Paul says churches really should try to pay them. They should be able to if they at all can. He takes, I mean, this is a bit funny, I think. He takes this kind of obscure mosaic law from Deuteronomy 25 about uh, don't uh, cover up your ox's mouth when he's treading out your grain because you're really cheap and you don't want him to eat some of it up. Uh, God's law says, no, no, let the ox do that. Let him eat whatever he wants. He's working after all. And Paul takes that kind of strange law and he says, oh yeah, you know, this is how you know that you should be paying your pastors. Uh, Don't muzzle them while they're teaching the Bible. (laughs) Pay them. Um, we know that he's talking about money because then this is actually one of, this is the only place uh, outside of the Gospels where the Gospels are quoted in the New Testament. Paul quotes one of the Gospels. This is probably Luke 10, verse 7. He quotes Jesus about how the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so the point here, Paul uh, struggled with this even in the first century. Uh, the point here is that it's not unspiritual for pastors to be paid, uh, even to be paid well. I'm not saying any of that because I'm uh, disgruntled. You all have supported me and my family very well, very generously. We're really grateful for that, especially with the many challenges and needs that have come up for us in the last couple years with now having a daughter with serious special needs. And so we are thankful. I rise up and call you blessed. I'm only saying this because it's here in the text. (laughs) That's how to honor good elders. Uh, Please keep doing it. Uh, Here's how to honor bad elders. Here's how to honor me if I go sideways. One way to honor the elder and the message he proclaims is through church discipline when the elder refuses to repent. At the end of the day, the only thing that churches ever are supposed to discipline people for is a lack of repentance. We don't punish people because they did something and we want to really teach them a lesson and stick it to them. Uh, It's always with an eye towards repentance, towards restoration. Paul says in verse 19 that elders have the same rights to due process and a fair trial that everybody else does. Uh, He says you need to have multiple witnesses, not just hearsay, not just gossip, not just slander, because the pastor is a visible, physical punching bag that's easy to hit hit because you can't punch God. Paul says in verse 21, he reminds Timothy that church discipline needs to be as above board, as objective as possible. He soberly charges him that God and Jesus are watching and listening with the holy angels in heaven standing as witness. He says, no prejudice, no partiality, no funny business in bringing charges against people. It's very serious. Paul says in verse 20, assuming that the elder has received a fair trial, if he refuses to repent, Paul says, make sure you rebuke him publicly. Uh, Don't do what a lot of churches do where they kind of hide this stuff and they don't let it get out. They don't want people to know because it will hurt our brand. It'll hurt our numbers. Paul says, rebuke the pastor publicly because a pastor can do so much damage through his work and his position. The church should treat unrepentance with the greatest seriousness and sobriety. Paul says, act in such a way, rebuke the pastor in such a way, that the whole church will stand in fear. Because all Christians are called to live in repentance for all of our sins, and the Lord does not leave his people or his church to persist in them. If a church tolerates sin, uh, bad things are coming for that church. You see that in Jesus' letters to the churches at the beginning of Revelation. He says, you guys got to change. I'm going to come and snuff out your candle. That means I'm going to destroy your church. You need to repent. 
Because elders can do so much damage when they become consumed with greed or ambition or power, Paul tells Timothy, be really careful, be cautious about ordaining them too quickly. He says in verse 24 that sin, like integrity, is sometimes clear right away, but also can take sometimes a long time to show up. He says that Timothy does not want to end up sharing in this new elder's sin, sharing in its effects by rushing somebody into a position of leadership just because you thought he was a nice guy, just because you really needed some help. Paul says, keep yourself pure. Uh, And then he makes this very strange side comment, which I'm not really sure why it's here, about don't just drink water anymore, also drink a little bit of wine because you get sick all the time. Uh, I'm not sure, maybe because Timothy was a little too rigorous about staying pure. Paul just said, stay pure. And then he makes a comment about, hey, Timothy, you're a little too hardcore about this staying pure thing. Don't just drink water. Uh, Loosen up. It's okay to drink alcohol every once in a while. Maybe that's why he says it. Maybe, uh, this is my theory, maybe because Timothy was sick all the time, he was really tempted to rush people into leadership. He needs a lot of help because he doesn't feel good all the time. And so Paul says, uh, be careful. Take some medicine so that you'll feel better. Here's wine. This is the first century equivalent of going to the doctor. (laughs) So that's how a church should honor its leaders, not only when they are doing what they should, but also when they are doing what they should not. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul now turns to a third specific category of people to honor in the church. He's talking about how Christian slaves should honor their masters. Slavery has been openly practiced everywhere by every race for almost all of history. It's as human as war and prostitution and inflating money. Slavery in the ancient Roman world was generally pretty different than the chattel slavery of the transatlantic slave trade that we hear about a lot. Uh, Paul condemned this kind of slavery in chapter 1. Remember, he says that God's law condemns those who kidnap people. The Mosaic law says that if you kidnap people, or if you are found in possession of somebody who has kidnapped, or presumably their descendants, the Mosaic law says you deserve the death penalty. This is not the kind of slavery uh, that the Old Testament law is talking about and regulating. And I don't think it's mainly what Paul is talking about here. Uh, Slavery in the ancient Greco-Roman world was often voluntary. For many people, it was the difference between life and death. Um, I told you earlier that half of girls in the Roman world died before about the age of 13. A lot of that was because people often didn't want to have girls, and so they would abandon baby girls on the trash heaps of their cities. And sometimes people would come along and rescue those little babies and raise them as slaves. Many slaves in the ancient world were paid, many of them were educated, many of them were freed, many of them were adopted as heirs. But even so, the practice and the institution often entailed a great deal of wickedness, which Paul alludes to here by describing it as being under a yoke, no different, no better than an animal. Jesus himself never physically freed a slave But even so, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that Christian slaves should try to get out of it if at all possible. In Philemon, he firmly exhorts a Christian master to free his slave. Paul, unlike in the ways he talks about marriage, unlike in the ways he talks about parenting, Paul never ever refers to God's will, whether in creation or in the law. He never refers to that when he's talking about slavery. He never says, well, this is just the way that God made the world. Uh, Or look, here's some laws about slavery. Paul doesn't do that. Paul does not at all excuse or defend the wickedness of slavery. 
in the same way that Jesus did not excuse or defend it, even though he never actually freed any slaves. Instead, Paul is concerned about Christian slaves bringing a bad name on Jesus and on his word because they're being lazy or because they're stealing or because they're acting contemptuously towards their masters. Paul wants them to show honor and respect toward their masters, even bad masters, but especially toward Christian masters. He says, you might be tempted to think because your boss, your master is a Christian, that you can just kind of slack off even more. And Paul says, don't do that. Treat them even better. These exhortations are very similar to how the New Testament often describes a Christian's attitude toward the state, toward the government. Paul's primary concern is not that Christians escape the injustice of slavery or of the state, even though we can and we should do so when possible. But rather, Paul's first concern is how they honor Christ in it. Especially when your only recourse, like it was in the first century, unlike today in many ways, if you're being abused, uh, their only recourse was outright violence, outright rebellion and killing. Paul says, that's not where we go. Start with honoring them, behaving calmly and peacefully. Even though living for Christ sometimes means eventually and even forcefully rising up against injustice, there's been a very long tradition of Christian theology reflecting on when you can kill tyrants. Honoring Jesus is more important than escaping from it. For as Augustine said in The City of God, which I've been reading really slow, reflecting on, you know, uh, how did the Roman Empire fall and what does Christianity have to do with it? Augustine made this really interesting comment there towards the beginning of it. He's bemoaning the human desire, the universal human desire to have a, be- a good house more than we'd rather have a good soul. Most people want a good house more than a good soul. And he says this, he says, evil men regard as evils only those things that do not make men evil. I'll read that again. Evil men regard as evils only those things that do not make men evil. He's referring to things like famine, slavery, war, suffering, death, decline. They don't make you evil. They are evil. They are kinds of evil, but they can't make you evil. More often than not, God transforms us not by taking us out of suffering like we would like and like we often do seek, and it's okay to seek to get out of suffering, but more often than not, God transforms us not by taking us out of suffering, but by empowering us and meeting us in the middle of it. Slavery and human trafficking is still widely practiced around the world today, even in Texas, though it often flies under the radar and it harms people far from most of our own experiences and backgrounds. Uh, And so it feels kind of silly to me, maybe even a bit obscene, to try to apply these verses uh, to us in our relative comfort and ease. Um, But even so, a very distant application of these verses for us today might be uh, how it intersects with our life in the workplace. Uh, Again, our workplace, uh, our employment is very different than slavery. It's very different than the situation Paul is talking to. But there are some principles there for us, uh, particularly as we are in very difficult or even unjust work situations. Uh, What does our behavior in our work communicate about who Jesus is and how he changes us? Widows and elders and masters... The church of Jesus has to be marked by people who more and more are joyfully giving up their rights for the sake of honoring others. How do you do that? Jesus came into the world as God in the flesh. Paul says this is the mystery of godliness. 
Jesus gave up his rights for our sake, even though we didn't at all deserve it. He had no duty, he had no obligation toward us as his creatures, other than the duty to condemn us. And yet, for our sake, he exchanged his wealth for poverty. He traded his glory and majesty for obscurity and scorn. The master of the universe became the slave of sinners. This glorious good news is the power of godliness. But it doesn't only give us the power, it also gives us the desire to look beyond ourselves toward those around us, to honor them by giving up our own rights. If in a sense God himself gave up his rights for us, how much more should we be willing to give them up for others? Let's pray. Father, help us to consider uh, the great love that you have shown us in the Son, the great sacrifice that you have shown in giving him up for us. Help us to see that and to savor that and to love that so that we might gain a deeper desire and eagerness and even joy to serve other people. Help us as a church uh, in many ways much more comfortable materially than most people in the world today, uh, certainly than most people in history. Help us, even us, to care for the weak and the poor and the vulnerable. Help us to not hide behind qualifications. Uh, Help us to not hide behind excuses, but help us to move out from ourselves in generosity and kindness and love and wisdom. Teach us to honor the elderly. Teach us to honor the weak. Teach us to honor those that you place in authority over us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.